Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Previously on the Zuring System. In prison, Zuring starts to establish a network of supporters who are dedicated to securing his release. Over the years, together with his so-called circle of friends, he collects evidence that he claims proves his innocence. His goal, to obtain an absolute pardon from the state of Virginia. Retired Scotland Yard detective Terry Wright reviews every single piece of the evidence that supposedly proves Zuring's innocence. His 454-page report on Jens Zuring's case, known as the Wright Report, is a milestone in the discussion about Zuring's guilt or innocence. The Zuring System, a podcast series from CCC Cinema and Television and Argon Lab 2022. Please note, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence that are not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 5 of 8. Fact Check. At Zuring's trial, several factors play a role in his conviction. His multiple and detailed confessions, which were all consistent and all matched up with the scene of the crime. The letters that he and Hasem wrote to one another. The fact that type O blood was found at the scene. And a bloody sock print. Later... Zuring will make numerous assertions that are intended to prove his innocence. In this episode, we fact-check these assertions and compare them with key aspects of the 1990 trial. With the help of Terry Wright's report, we carefully scrutinize the forensic evidence that allegedly exonerates Zuring. We also dissect the supposed false statements in Zuring's confessions while at the same time looking at other details that point to his presence at the crime scene. The Victims In his 1986 confessions, Zuring makes a mistake when describing the appearance of the victims. In his book, A Far, Far Better Thing, which he writes together with author Bill Sizemore and which is published in 2017 by Lantern Books, he claims that the real perpetrator would not have made this kind of mistake. Terry Wright is the one who questions him. Yes. Can you remember what they themselves were wearing? Jens, can you remember what they themselves were wearing, Nancy and Derek? What they were wearing? That's a very hard question. Let me try to think. I think Mrs. Hasem was wearing jeans. 
I think, um, I, like I said, it's. I would say that part of it is very, very confused. It's vague. Yes, very confused. She was wearing a blue flowery housecoat. Now, I remember that incident where we asked the question vividly because I actually asked the question. And I asked, what were they wearing, Nancy and Derek Hasem? And he said, um, oh, um, and he ummed and awed for a long time, but he couldn't remember, but he said, I think she was wearing jeans. And then he finished off his answer by saying, but it's very vague. Upon closer examination, however, this isn't a mistake so much as a memory gap. Zuring can no longer recall what Nancy Hasem was wearing. He had been drinking, and he's not used to drinking, and I'm guessing it was a pretty traumatic experience. And he did say all the way through, and he said to the German prosecutor too, that there were a lot of gaps in his memory. So maybe he doesn't remember the in the frenzy or whatever state of mind he was in. Gaps in a person's memory don't necessarily mean that their statements are any less credible. And there are other details that very clearly stick with Jens Zuring. Over the days that we interviewed him, there were a lot of details he couldn't remember and a lot of details he could remember. And the details that he could remember were accurate. But he insisted all the way through, and again when he spoke to the German prosecutor six months later, that his memory was very vague of the whole thing. And he, he said that it was like a, a, series, a series of still-life photographs. In 1986, Zuring confesses several times to murdering the Hasems while being interrogated by Terry Wright, Kenneth Beaver, and Ricky Gardner. He repeats his confession in front of an American prosecutor and six months later in front of a German prosecutor as well. His descriptions of the events can vary somewhat, but he also provides new details with every confession that come together to create a coherent picture. According to profiler and criminologist Axel Peterman, while false confessions do exist, the more detailed a statement is, the more likely it is that that person is in fact recalling their own experiences. Zuring's descriptions of the sequence of events and the night of the murders are not just coherent, they also provide information that allows us to conclude that Zuring must have been at the Hasem's home on the night that Derek and Nancy were murdered. The Dining Room Table In his confessions in 1986, Zuring states that he eats dinner with the Hasem's that night. He sits at the dining room table with his back to the window. Derek Hasem sits on his left with his back to the wall and Nancy Hasem sits across from him with her back to the dining room. After the murder, Zuring says he throws away his place setting, but leaves the other two place settings at the table. Photos of the crime scene show two place settings on the table, one at the seat closest to the wall and one at the seat across from the window. The one at the seat by the window is empty. The crime scene photos match Zuring's statements. Furthermore, in his confessions, Zuring describes the struggle that ensues between himself and Derek Hasem after dinner. 
Zuring claims that at one point he gets up and in response, Derek Hasem also stands up and pushes Zuring and Zuring's head hits the wall. In his books, he has since claimed that this statement is contradictory. If he is sitting with his back to the window and he is pushed, wouldn't his head go back into the window rather than into the wall? Terry Wright finds this explanation wanting. But again, if you look at the crime scene photographs, you will see that the the window is set in a wall. So at the corner of the room, there is a wall. But he also said that he thought the wall was made of stone. And if you look at the photographs, you'll see that the fireplace is a stone fireplace. And for him to rush out of the room, as he described, he would have to pass behind Derek Hasem between the chair and the wall that the fireplace is set in. And if Derek jumped up and pushed him back, he could have hit himself on the wall in the corner where the window is fixed, or he could have hit his head on the wall where the fireplace is fixed, either one. It's totally feasible, and it isn't a mistake at all. With this claim, Zuring inadvertently admits to having knowledge that only the perpetrator would have. In his 1986 confessions, Zuring states that Derek Hasem sat to his left and Nancy Hasem sat across from him. And in fact, not only does this description match the positions of the place settings, but it also lines up with Nancy and Derek Hasem's fingerprints, which are found on the dishes and glasses at the table. How does Zuring know where Derek and Nancy Hasem were sitting that evening if he wasn't at the house? Furthermore, a bloody shoe print is found directly behind where Derek Hasem was sitting. This matches how Zuring describes the events in his confessions. In his discussion with a German prosecutor in late 1986, Zuring says he gets up and stands behind Derek Hasem in order to cut his throat. For better listener quality, we made some grammatical adjustments in the original transcripts. But the next thing I can remember is that I stood behind Mr. Hasem, and then blood ran from his neck into his lap, and I was incredibly shocked. I can't really describe it. I I simply couldn't understand it. What were you unable to understand? That I was standing there with a knife in my hand. He... He had blood pouring into his lap. I don't know whether I stabbed him in the neck or slit his throat, but I I think it must have been something like that. A diagonal cut through the artery? Yes. That was it. The artery is here in the front, right? I, I don't know. It It came pouring out in any case. I had such a feeling, I simply couldn't comprehend it. Zuring's statement that blood poured out of Derek Hasem's wound correlates with the blood spatter that is found on both the napkin and the place setting where Derek Hasem had been sitting. The Bodies Nancy Hasem's body is found in the kitchen. When the detectives arrive at the scene, Derek Hasem's body is lying on the threshold between the dining room and the living room. During his trial, 
Zuring starts claiming that the fact that he incorrectly drew the position of Derek Hasem's body in a sketch during his confessions is proof that he was not at the scene of the crime. Terry Wright. Now, you have to remember, of course, that the, um, the crime scene was an ongoing crime scene because he left the house and he came back again and he, he said that the first time he left the house, Derek Hasem was shouting after him. That although they were probably very badly wounded, they might not have been dead and they could have moved. But anyway, he drew where the bodies were and what he, the sketch that he drew, in actual fact, he drew Nancy Hasem, he drew a little mark for her to mark her body in the kitchen exactly where she was found. He drew another mark to notate where Derek Hasem was left and he got the position right. He got the orientation of it wrong, but the location in the house was correct. On the following day, Zuring asked the detectives if he can amend his sketch. So we allowed him to amend it. He drew another sketch. Um, both of those sketches were shown to the jury. And in the second sketch, he just changed the orient orientation slightly, but they were still in the same position. So the sketches that he drew were very accurate, except for the orientation. So instead of like the body being shown with the head pointing towards the window, it might have been pointing the other way, but it's still in the right location. Zuring's memory is quite simply incomplete. He also expresses this to the German prosecutor in December 1986. I just remember that I only saw Mr. Hasem's legs because he was lying on the floor. And actually, he was next to the hallway between living and dining room. And as I said, I also have a vague memory of seeing Mrs. Hasem's torso in the kitchen. But it was like I was standing next to her, let's say, uh, perhaps at the sink. I don't know. The fact that Zuring can no longer remember exactly what direction the victim's bodies were facing does not mean that he was not present at the scene of the crime. If anything, by correctly identifying the locations of the victim's bodies in the house, he once again demonstrates that he has knowledge of the murder that only the perpetrator would have. The Murder Weapon In his book, A Far, Far Better Thing, Zuring claims that, in his confessions, he identifies the murder weapon as a double-edged butterfly knife. However, he does so at a point during which the audio recorder is switched off and no one is taking notes. During Zuring's trial, pathologist Dr. David Oxley, who autopsied the Hasems, states that the murder weapon had to have been one or more single-edged knives. According to Zuring, this means that his description of the murder weapon in his confessions is incorrect. Based on the recordings, it is unclear whether or not Zuring ever actually mentioned a butterfly knife during his confessions. It seems doubtful that the investigators would not have at least noted down a key fact like this. However, even though there are no recordings of Zuring making a clear statement regarding the murder weapon during his confessions, his reaction whenever a knife was mentioned certainly makes him seem more guilty than innocent. He would not talk about the knife at all, and yet... Somewhere in one of his books, he said that he um, he described the knife, and he never did, because that sort of touched on to premeditation. Yeah, well, where did you where did the knife come from? Then when you cut Derek, well, I, um, I can't talk about that because I don't think it's wise. And 
did you take a knife with you? Uh, well, I can't talk about that one. And so any time that sort of indicated premeditation, or he thought, then he he just said, I'm not answering that question, which is a, a good indication that he knew his rights exactly. He knew he didn't have to answer. In his interview with the German prosecutor, Zuring once again refuses to discuss the murder weapon. Where did you get the knife? I didn't answer this question when the American prosecutor asked it, and I will not answer it now. I know you don't want to answer it. You're thinking that this would make it a premeditated crime, which is what it amounts to. Yes. Certainly, we will also have to consider questions of intent and negligence, but that's something different than whether the act was planned or not. How did you get the knife? Perhaps we can discuss this later. It's highly likely that, by refusing to talk about the murder weapon, what it looked like, where it was purchased, whether or not he brought it with him, Zuring is trying to avoid implicating himself in premeditated murder. The sock print. A bloody partial sock print is collected at the scene of the crime in 1985. Together with Zuring's detailed confessions and the blood group tests, this sock print is a key piece of evidence in Zuring's trial. The jury is shown various footprints, including those of Elizabeth Hasem's brother and his ex-girlfriend, as well as those of Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Zuring. An FBI expert is called in to offer his opinion on the prints. The expert comes to the conclusion that Zuring's footprint most closely matches the bloody sock print at the scene of the crime. They had them walk across some paper with ink on their feet, and he prepared an overlay from the footprint found in the scene and compared the two so that you could lift the, the sort of acetate sheet up and down and, and look at the two. And they were remarkably similar, which is uh, something that Zuring says himself, actually. So it was the overlay that I think convinced the jury or helped to convince the jury. Time and again, Zuring's circle of friends has argued that footprints are not the same as fingerprints, that it's not possible to identify a person by comparing their footprint with a sock print, that the expert was not an expert for sock prints, but rather for tire marks, and that the sock print was too small to belong to Zuring. When the scientists measure the footprints and measure, measure the shoe prints and the sock prints, to determine a, a really accurate measurement was very difficult due to the surface that they were on, really. In order to estimate the approximate size of the shoe and sock prints, the investigators speak with several shoe store managers. And those store managers were asked, if you had a shoe print that was a certain length, what size shoe would that be? And of course, the managers who are not forensic experts and not shoe experts, and they might have a, a general idea, but they came up with their answer. The size of the print cannot be definitively determined. Therefore, the prosecutor's argument is simply that out of all the footprints they collected, Zuring's footprint is the one that is closest to the sock print. Former attorney Andrew Hamill, who has studied the trial records, also comes to this conclusion. The prosecution never said this sock print was made by Yin Zuring. It simply said it could have been made by Yin Zuring. It does not exclude him. He is still in the pool of suspects. However, when discussing these footprints, Zuring once again makes statements in his confessions that match up exactly with the evidence at the crime scene. In the house, they found footprints with 
shoe prints and they found footprints that were uh, with no shoes. And that was not general knowledge. The details from the crime scene were not general knowledge in Virginia. And yet, when he confessed, he said, I went back to the house a second time uh, without my shoes. So that that's quite significant. In his confessions, Zuring claims that after committing the murder, he throws his shoes into a dumpster and then drives back to the house to cover his tracks. During the trial, Bedford County Prosecutor Jim Updike also includes this detail as a further piece of the puzzle, one that helps to paint a comprehensive picture of the murders. The blood in the car. In Zuring's trial, Elizabeth Hasem says the following about the blood in the car. He had a sheet draped over him, and um, it had a, a large quantity of, of blood on it. And I said to him, oh, my God. And um, he said that he had killed my parents. An employee from the rental car company is also questioned during the trial. She states that the car was clean when it was returned. Luminol tests that are carried out later on by the investigating officers do not show any traces of blood in the car. In episode one of this podcast, we discuss the possibility that the luminol could have been applied incorrectly or that the car may have been cleaned too many times between the murders and the investigation. It's generally accepted that Elizabeth said the whole car was covered in blood, but she didn't say that. And in fact, when people refer to there being blood all over the place, it was actually Jim Updike that said that during the trial. It wasn't Elizabeth at all. According to Wright, it is Bedford County Prosecutor Jim Updike who says during the trial that the car was covered in blood. And Elizabeth Hayson was specifically asked where the blood was, and she basically said that she couldn't remember seeing any blood on the seats. So I think what happened was the blood that she saw was on the bedspread and, and the towel, and it all got thrown away. So maybe there wasn't any on the steering wheel because it was all in the towel that was wrapped around his hand. But the, the point is that she was specifically asked where all the blood was and she said she couldn't remember there being any on the seats or on. She, she, she didn't remember it being in the car. The dog. It's the small details that are so puzzling. Zuring tells the investigators that somewhere along the way, probably between the dumpsters where he disposed of his pants, the murder weapon and the tablecloth and the Hasem's house, he hits a dog with his car. Ricky Gardner remembers Zuring asking him during the interrogations whether the police had found a dead dog on the street. During his interview with me and, and later with Ken Turry, he talks about going to the house, killing the Hasems, getting back in the vehicle, uh, taking his clothes off, disrobing, being in the car, and driving back to the dumpster site. So he stops and he says, by the way, he said, did you find a dog that was, the, was it a dog laying in the road or on beside the road or was there a dog there? And I went, a what? And he says, a dog, was there a dog laying in the road? And I remember being taken aback and I'm going, wait a minute. So I said, wait a minute. I said, so, so you just brutally murdered two people and you're asking me about a dog? And he looked at me and he said, that dog never did anything to me. For Ricky Gardner, 
Details like these from Zuring's 1986 confession are a clear indication that the confession was, in fact, real, and that he did, in fact, murder the Hasems. Now, I ask anyone that, that anybody was fabricating a story, why would you interject anything about a dog? Well, uh, he's brilliant. This is brilliant. I mean, it's no doubt in my mind he's brilliant. He's not that smart. And and then later, Elizabeth says that when he came back and she was cleaning the car, he told her, he said, make sure you clean the front of that car right there. Now, that's just one little thing. That's just one little thing. The sequence of events. Zuring insists that his confession contains a fundamental improbability. Namely, that a single individual could kill two people in two separate non-adjoining rooms with a knife. However, this is entirely possible. It all depends on the situation. In his description of the sequence of events from his 1986 confessions, Zuring himself confirms that the location of the bodies is not identical to the location of the crime. He claims that most of the altercation between himself and the Hasems takes place in the dining room, which is located between the kitchen and the living room. He describes the Hasems' struggle for survival in vivid detail. Wright reads from the notes he took during Zuring's confessions. So you must remember, as I go through these, this is not in any chronological order. So we were asking questions. So like he says, he's still sitting. That's probably referring to before he started to cut him. He got up and attacked me. They used Nancy Hasem, where I put NH, as a shield. And during this struggle, his glasses got knocked off. It got cut on DH hand, could have been done by Yance. So Ricky Gardner has asked him about the defence wounds. It could have been done by Yance, or it could have been by Nancy Hasem during the struggle. Mrs Hasem, I cut her on the same side of the throat as DH. Last time I saw her, she was going to the kitchen. A small pool of blood around her head, NH, being Nancy Hasem again, didn't see either victim fall down. D.H. standing like a bear, arms up in the air. D.H. said, God, you must be crazy, man. He was shouting after me when I left. Nancy Hasem was walking towards the kitchen with hands to her throat. He then reenacted the crime scene. Held D.H.'s head, right hand with knife, to D.H.'s throat and cut left side of throat. N.H. came towards him. Yance grabbed her arm and held it away from him and towards N.H. He hit me several times, furniture and things flying, picked up a glass from the floor, unbroken. On return to loose chippings, both on the floor, not moving. Furthermore, Zuring's team argues that, in 1985, Zuring is much too small to be able to overpower Derek Hasem. In an interview that Zuring's attorney Stephen Rosenfield gives to American talk show host Coy Barefoot in 2016, Rosenfield claims that at the time of the murders, Zuring only weighed around 120 pounds. He describes Derek Hasem as a giant of a man roughly six foot three, weighing in at 260 pounds. However, these details are incorrect. The autopsy report from 1985 states that, at the time of his death, the 70-year-old Derek Hasem is 5'7 and weighs 165 pounds. 
At the time of his arrest in 1986, 19-year-old Jens Zuring weighs around 167 pounds and is 5'9", making him slightly taller and heavier than Derek Hasem. In her letters and her confession in London in 1986, Elizabeth Hasem describes her father as an older man who is starting to become frail. My father and I were very close. Sometimes I felt irritated with his. The fact that he was getting old and that he was getting clumsy and fragile. If we take into account the fact that, at the time of their deaths, Nancy and Derek Hasem both have blood alcohol levels of about two, then under these circumstances, it is not unthinkable that a healthy young man could kill two people. Furthermore, in his report, Wright points out that Zuring's assault on the Hasems would have been a surprise attack. This would have given him a clear advantage. DNA and traces of blood at the crime scene. In his books and in court, Jens Zuring claims that Elizabeth Hasem murdered her parents together with two male accomplices. One of these accomplices is an alleged drug dealer named Jim. The documentary film Killing for Love also expresses suspicion that Jim has something to do with the crime. At no point is this individual a suspect in the murder case. During the original investigation, he is not questioned and his name does not appear anywhere. He does not appear before the jury as a witness in Zuring's trial. Jim has since passed away, and so he can no longer defend himself against these accusations. In 2009, a DNA analysis is carried out on the blood samples that were collected from the crime scene in 1985. Zuring has two experts interpret the results of this analysis in 2016. According to these experts, the forensic evidence proves that two unidentified males were present at the scene of the crime. Jens Zuring also claims that the evidence shows that he could not be the murderer. Terry Wright is familiar with the story. And they tested the samples. In fact, samples is the wrong word, actually. They tested the exhibits because samples suggest that it's like a sample of blood, and it wasn't. It's the swabs that were tested the blood with. But anyway, they wrote a report of their findings, and it was dated in 2009. During the original investigation in 1985, blood is collected at the scene of the crime in accordance with the forensic standards of the day. Both victims sustain numerous deep cuts and both bleed a great deal. In his confessions, Zuring states for the record that he suffers cuts on one of his hands during the struggle with either Nancy or Derek Hasem. According to a witness statement, at the Hasem's funeral, Zuring has a clearly visible bandage wrapped around that hand. At Zuring's trial in 1990, witness Donald H. says the following. I noticed a deep bruise on the left cheek of Mr. Zuring, and it occurred to me at the time that he had received a good right cross. Did you notice anything else concerning Yes, I noticed that he had a couple of bandaged fingers. Zuring's circle of friends question the validity of this witness statement. However, there is further evidence of Zuring's injuries. That fits in very, very well with the description of the murders that Zuring gave us. 
And also he showed us during the interviews a cut on his hand that he received while, while the fight was going on. Yen Suring during the interrogation with the German prosecutor in London, December 1986. Sometime I must have been injured by the knife. Somehow I got two holes, not exactly cuts in the fingers of my left hand. I had the impression that a small lump of flesh was cut out. That must have happened at the time that I tried to take the knife away. In 1985, serological tests are carried out using the collected blood samples. The results. The blood found in Derek and Nancy Hasem's home is mainly type A and type AB. A small amount of type O blood is found, and a small splotch of type B blood is found on a washcloth that is lying in a closed washing machine. During the autopsy, blood samples are taken from both of the victims, and their blood types are determined. Derek Hasem had type A blood. Nancy Hasem had type AB. Yen Suring has type O. Elizabeth Hasem has type B. Criminalist and profiler Axel Peterman discusses the investigator's approach. The murders took place in 1985. In terms of forensics or criminology, during this period, investigators were certainly already working with these kinds of blood types. Of course, the fact that a blood type is found at the scene is not enough to make a definitive statement as to the identity of the murderer or murderers. Type O blood, Zuring's blood type, is found in around 45% of the U.S. population. However, where the blood is located at a crime scene plays an important role in identifying the perpetrator. Type B blood, Elizabeth Hasem's blood type, is only found on a washcloth inside of the washing machine. The door of the washing machine is locked. A carefully folded hand towel is hanging in front of it. No blood is found on the outside of the washing machine. Everything speaks to the fact that the type B blood made its way onto the washcloth at an earlier time and not on the night of the murders. Forensic scientist Mary Jane Burton, who tests the blood samples found at the scene of the crime in a lab, makes a statement about that at Zuring's trial. According to her, it is possible that Nancy Hasem's type AB blood could have accidentally been read as type B blood. The use of luminol can falsify the results when small amounts of blood are tested. Type O blood was mainly found on the inside of the front door. There were just a few small blood flecks, which could have come from cuts on the perpetrator's hand as they were leaving the home. So what do the blood samples and the DNA results have to do with one another? DNA wird in unterschiedlichen DNA can be detected in various secretions, such as blood, saliva, and sperm. However, we can also find DNA at a crime scene from epithelia, meaning skin cells, or in hair. So we have five major groups where you can find human DNA. Naturally, blood also contains DNA. In 1985, no one could have known that DNA analysis would be possible in the future. For this reason, the DNA from the Hasem case that is used for analysis in 2009 came solely from the blood samples that were collected at the crime scene in 1985. If back then they only took blood samples 
and since both victims were severely wounded, they only would have taken blood samples from the scene. In 1985, no one would have considered taking scrappings from light switches, door handles, any objects that the perpetrator could have touched or could have used during the crime. And therefore, it's possible that no DNA from the perpetrator was found because they were solely focused on the blood. In order to obtain clear DNA evidence, it is important to collect sufficient material at the crime scene and to properly store this material afterwards. Therefore, it's possible that a complete DNA profile could be obtained when there was sufficient material in the sample. But now sometimes it's possible that there is not enough DNA present in the sample because, for example, it is a very small sample. It's entirely possible that there wasn't enough DNA in the sample or that it was denatured or degraded, that originally there was enough material there, but then too much time had passed and it could no longer be clearly identified because the DNA fragments were damaged. In 2009, there are no existing comparative samples of Derek and Nancy Hasem's DNA. Despite having greater quantities of type A and AB blood, the DNA analysis is only able to deliver partial DNA profiles that cannot clearly identify the victims. Furthermore, it is not possible to create a DNA profile of the perpetrator because there is not enough type O blood. Zuring claims that the DNA analysis clearly shows that two unidentified males, Elizabeth Hasem's accomplices, were present at the scene of the crime with her. His argument rests on two facts. One is that the fragmented DNA profiles that are created using the type O blood samples contain male DNA that does not match Zuring's DNA. And the second is that male DNA is found in one sample of type AB blood, which was Nancy Hasem's blood type. This DNA also does not match Zuring's. So were there actually two unidentified males with type AB and type O blood at the scene of the crime? In all likelihood, no, because there is another much more likely explanation for these findings. The blood and the DNA in the samples do not necessarily have to come from the same source, says Axel Peterman. We're talking about 1985 here. At that time, no one could imagine that DNA testing would one day be possible. Therefore, we cannot compare the collection methods used back then to the ones we use now, where everyone is walking around the crime scene, wearing these white biohazard suits, a surgical mask, a hairnet, gloves, and everything else that we do today to avoid contaminating the evidence. I could imagine that in 1985, the way they did things in the U.S. was similar to how we did them here in Germany. Maybe you would wear a pair of surgical gloves, if anything. So, as you can imagine, it's totally possible for a sample to be contaminated. They used their swabs to collect blood samples and thought, okay, now let's test this blood to see if we only have blood from the victims or if we perhaps have blood from the perpetrator. Then we'll see if this can help us solve the crime. It's also possible that mistakes were made when the samples were collected. It is not possible to make a truly definitive statement based on this evidence. 
However, it is highly likely that the samples that are tested, which Zuring claims is evidence that other people were present at the scene of the crime, were actually just cross-contaminated, and that the male DNA in the tested samples is not that of another person, but rather belongs to Derek Hasem. Look, both of the victims lived in this house. It's totally possible that during the course of their day-to-day lives, they touched objects in the house, left skin cells behind, and that the typo blood from the murderer ended on top of these skin cells. The following facts support this thesis. Fragments of male DNA profiles that are all extremely similar are found in the type O, type A, and type AB blood samples. This indicates that the DNA found in the various blood samples all came from a single person. One of these blood samples containing male DNA, in this case, the type A sample, is taken directly from Derek Hasem's body. This further increases the likelihood that all of the fragmented male DNA profiles contain Derek Hasem's DNA, and that this DNA mixed together with the blood spatter at the scene of the crime. Terry Wright compared the serological test from 1985 with the DNA analysis from 2009 from this point of view. So if you look at the the serology report in 1985, you'll see that the sample was taken at the head of Derek Hasem. So basically, they've taken a sample of the blood right by his head. And that sample is one of the samples that produced a partial profile. It's almost guaranteed that that DNA profile is from Derek Hasem. Although none of the scientists will say for certain, uh, it's highly likely that the DNA profiles that were found that are supposedly unknown are from the victims, Nancy and Derek Hasem. Andrew Hamill comes to a similar conclusion. And now even one of the experts that he had originally hired, Dr. J. Thomas McClintock, has admitted that probably the best interpretation of the DNA evidence is that all of the male DNA came from Derek Hasem and it was a result of cross-contamination. And every single independent expert has come to the exact same conclusion, that there is no evidence of any other people at the crime scene except for Yin Zering and the Hasems. The DNA analysis from 2009 do not prove that Yen Zering committed the murders, nor do they exonerate him. They do not prove that there were any other unidentified males at the scene of the crime. In fact, this is the least likely of all the possible interpretations of the DNA analysis. One thing is clear, however. The places where the blood is found match Zering's descriptions of the sequence of events from his confessions. Even the Virginia Parole Board, which reviews Zuring's application for an absolute pardon in 2016 on the basis of the DNA reports, does not find that the DNA analysis from 2009 offers any evidence of his innocence. More than 700 criminals are pardoned in Virginia during Ralph Northam's tenure as governor. Zuring is not one of them. A judge rejects his application for an absolute pardon in 2019, stating that his petition is without merit. Over the years, Zuring and his supporters have turned the matter of his guilt or innocence into a question of who is to be believed, Zuring and his proponents or his critics. However, when we look at the evidence in the case, 
we see that it's not a matter of faith. The facts and the evidence simply do not support Jens Zuring's claims of innocence. Both the jury at Zuring's trial in 1990, as well as all the other courts and authorities who have reviewed the case in the intervening years, all share the same view as well. That when taken as a whole, all of the evidence points to Zuring as the murderer. Zuring makes every effort to win what he calls his struggle for freedom. But in order to do so, he needs people who will believe him and support him unconditionally. And he is able to win people over to his side, both in Germany and the U.S. They work tirelessly without pay to get Zuring, a convicted double murderer, released from prison. One of these helpers who is willing to make personal sacrifices to support Zuring's struggle for freedom is Annabelle. She is the first former member of Zuring's inner circle to speak openly about her experiences. And it got to a point where I was doubting my own sanity and my own intelligence because I thought, I can't be the only one who understands that this is completely worthless. But everyone else was raving about it. And I think my, my mistake was that I didn't speak up. I had spoken up about an inconsistency before, and that was a completely dead end. And when you're part of this personality cult, you can't just go to someone else and say, but wait a minute, this doesn't add up. The Zuring System, Episode 5 of 8. Fact Check. Our narrator is Karen Cifarelli. You also heard the voice talents of Sungor Bentor, Celine De Janeiro, Jeffrey Middleman, Michael S. Rozinski, and Seamus Sargent. This has been a production of Argonne Lab and CCC Cinema and Television 2022. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.